0: So, we've had a couple of people here for the first time today. We spent quite a few months uh, going through the parables of Jesus, and I called it speaking to us in his outside voice because the parables were designed to uh, illustrate God's love for the people that are outside the church, to be able to give them an invitation to come in. And after spending all that time on the outside, reaching out to the outside, we transitioned a little bit with the parables, two parables that were designed actually to speak to people who felt that they were right with God. In other words, spoke to the church. And so we've been spending a little time then Jesus speaking to the church in the inside voice. And if the parables are his outside voice, then the inside voice is the Sermon on the Mount. It was only designed for people who had already decided to be his disciples. It doesn't mean that Outside people can't learn from it, but what they learn the most from are disciples who live out Jesus' love and reach them, than with the inside voice. But Jesus is speaking to the inside voice, and last week we uh, kind of looked at this beatitude right here, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And if you remember from last week... Uh, The purity that he's talking about is not being able to walk around and never have an impure thought. Never have a a selfish uh, way or a, a, a mean thing to think or coarse language or lust or anything like that. It's all about motive as it's wrapped up in there. Because the two bookends of a pure heart, if you will, the two pillars that it rested upon was the motive for worship. Why is it that we have a heart for God? Why is it we worship God? What is our motive? Do we have a pure motive or do we not? Because he talks about then the good things that every Christian does, that every believer, every church member believes are good things to do, that we should do. He calls them your acts of righteousness. Remember, we looked at them. They were praying, giving, and fasting. All, all of those things were religious duties. They're things that we are called to do. Most Christians would agree that we all need to pray. giving sinful? No. Praying and giving are not sinful. They're there in in the language. If you pray, you give. It isn't necessarily sinful. But it can be done with the wrong motive. It can be done with an impure heart. So remember the one bookend was practicing your righteousness before People who are going to praise you for your righteousness. If that's it, what you're in it for, then great. He said, Don't expect a reward from your Father. Because the Father who rewards in secret is the one who will give you in the Lord, a reward. But the will be in what? So that's the one boundary of the motive. That's the other one. The other one is when you're praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be what? They think they'll be heard because they're good prayers, because they're constant prayers, because they're consistent prayers. They think that they'll be heard. So the other bookend is one, don't do it in front of people in order to look righteous, and the other is don't try to buy God's favor. Why? Do we remember why? Because you've already found favor with God. Before you ever pray, before you ever give, before you ever fast. Before you ever do anything that you feel you've been called to do as a Christian, you've already found favor with God. He is not going to love you more because you give, pray, and fast. He goes on to say he already knows what you're going to say before you say it. So you're not going to be heard because of your phrases. You're not going to be heard the the reason that the, the pagans pay to their dead gods. They think that their dead gods give them favor if they say the right words. God says, I already know what you're going to say. Come in the closet, just you and me. You've already found a favor with me. I only want you to talk to me because I like the sound of your voice. I like to be with you. So that now that our hearts are pure, how many feel better about their hearts? That it isn't, say, an impure thought here and there that, that God doesn't like. What God doesn't like is impure motives, even for doing good things. So now that we're all together with our motives, purified, there's one more aspect. I told you that we would look at the other aspect of motive. Last week, it was the motives about the doers, the ones that are doing. This week, it's about the rest of us. It's about all of us who are doing also, but also being in fellowship the test of whether or not my motive is pure is to be in a church with other people who are looking to do good things and how I feel about them as they do it and how I treat them as they do it. That might just be the only test. everybody, if you're going to be all together with your pure hearts, then this is what, how you will live. Do not what? Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged. In other words, the standard that I judge you will be the standard that God will use to judge me. And the measure you give will also be the measure you what? judging. Now this is one of those times in the Bible where we have debated and we've come up with metaphor after metaphor. And I have to tell you that for years and years and years, I never heard a decent, adequate definition of what it meant to judge. We're either too harsh when we judge or we're either too lenient when we judge. We really don't know what it means to judge somebody else. If I were to ask two of you for a definition of what it means to judge, I bet I would get three opinions, three different answers. Judging is something that comes right along in the context of the inside voice. Number one, what is the, who, who is our only judge? God is our only judge, right? So the only judge that is to be judged, one of the reasons we don't judge is because he's the only one. What qualifies him to be judge? He created us. He's the only one that's right from beginning to end, right? He's the only one that we can count on. The only one qualified to judge is somebody who loves their neighbor more than themselves. If I ever could achieve that I truly would love my neighbor more than myself, in other words, I could lay down my life for the friend, maybe, just maybe, I might be allowed to judge. But what's interesting is that the time that that happens, the time that we are to be living out a complete perfection that way will already be in the kingdom, which means there'll be no reason for judgment anyway. So I talked about not having a, a... a good way at least to, to, to judge, uh, to judge, to define this. Uh, so we talk about then we, we go to metaphor. Well, uh, we're allowed then to point stuff out, aren't we? We're allowed to, to uh, point a sin out here or there if, some, if it's gonna harm somebody. Uh, you know, we're, aren't we allowed to do that? We're always looking for what we just might be allowed to do and it usually has to do with how much worse we can make somebody feel in order for me to feel better about myself. I thank you, O Lord, I'm not like that tax collector over there. Was the the self-righteous Pharisee, was he judging the tax collector? Yeah. Just by calling him a tax collector, he was attributing him to be the worst sinner in the world. And in contrast, he felt so much better about himself that he had to remind the judge of his resume. I'm not a thief, I'm not a rogue, I'm not an adulterer. That guy is all of those. Of course he's judging, isn't he? So we begin to look at what we're allowed to do. Uh, Can we we, uh, judge and not judge, if you will? We begin to live out metaphor. It's kind of like when we were talking about you've heard it said that you uh, uh, love your neighbor and you hate your enemies, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for them. That we start to begin to think, well, that's gotta be metaphorical, right? Who can love their enemy? Jesus can. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. So the pure in heart is defined by our motives. Unselfishly doing good. Seeking true forgiveness when we've been convicted of selfishness when our hearts aren't pure, when our motives aren't pure. So it leads me to a place that we may not expect, where I want to start talking. Apparently, the valley had more powerful politicians living in it because when it was decided, they moved the capital where? They moved the capital of Phoenix. Yay. In exchange, the land-grant university that the federal government gave every territory when they became a state was placed then in Tucson as a compromise. So it was placed in Tucson, and it is now known today as the University of Arizona. There was a college founded in the Phoenix area in 1886. A small college that was in a suburb called Tempe. It was known as the Tempe Normal School. In 1946, it was renamed the Arizona State Teachers College Tempe. You had to put Tempe at the end of it because there was another one, Arizona State Teachers College Flagstaff. In 1953, by statewide ballot, it became Arizona State University. So let's talk about the real important stuff about ASU. It's athletic. 2 years later a former Disney animator designed the logo. You guys know who it is, right? This is Sparky. This became the logo for ASU for the next 75 years. Okay. And I say a former Disney Disney animator had a falling out with Walt Disney. He was fired for being incompetent. That's the reason why Sparky kind of looks like Walt himself. It's his revenge. Now I know that they are called the Sun Devils. And the word devil is in the name. But I have to tell you, when I think of devil as far as we're concerned, I don't think of that. Do you? I don't think that that's necessarily evil. His name is Sparky. I'll tell you what really is evil. you want to see an evil mascot, I think it's this guy. (laughs) Okay. But when you think of what it means to be satanic or like the devil, what do you think of? Do you think of a pitchfork and a tail? And cloven hooves? Do you think of pentagrams? Heavy metal music? Sacrifices? Do you think of all of those things? I'm uncomfortable with saying that that is what is truly satanic. Back during what we called the satanic scare back in the 80s, I was, I was, my very first uh, job in the church was as a youth leader. And no, we were completely scared of satanic worship. We'd, remember, we were, we were told that that's why all the children were disappearing. The problem that I have with defining satanic as something like that is that I really think that when people out there think that that's what is associated with being satanic, I really think the real Satan wins a victory because he's much more subtle than that. And you don't need a sacrifice. You don't need a pentagram. You don't need a certain type of music. You don't need any of that in order to be satanic. The Bible's very clear as to what sa- satanic really means. And we were first introduced to it as concerned with motive for worshipers. Told you, i get back to it. I'm not going down a road. This is where, I've, where I wanted to go. And it's not a rabbit trail. I'm just not sure if it'll work. But where we're introduced to what it really means to be satanic is in Job chapter one and two. So the book of Job is unique because it begins with what, it's not unique, okay? It's one of three books that actually begins with a heaven's eye view. What I love about the book of Job is the first two chapters is that you're given a heaven's eye view. You're given God's view of all this. There's very few books in the Bible that give you God's view. Ezekiel, Job, and Revelation the only time that we see the world or that we see creation through God's eyes actually being in his throne room. And in the first two chapters of Job, you're introduced to the three main characters in the book of Job. God, Job, and Satan. They're all three, the three main characters. And so when I look at what it truly means to be satanic, I look at what he said and what he did in the book of Job. On the day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord, Satan shows up at the meeting. He's there. Satan comes in among them. Now I have to tell you that scholars will tell you that the character of Satan has not been developed into the personage that he became in the New Testament. Back in the early Hebrew scriptures, He's not that person. He's not what you would consider. As a matter of fact, we don't have a definition of Satan being the serpent until the book of Revelation is written. In the Old Testament, for the most part, let me I, and this may be a, simple, a simplified way of looking at it, the Old Testament, for the most part, Satan is not a proper name. It's not his name. It's an actual Hebrew word. The supernatural enemy of God is just a word describing an, an adversary, an accuser, or an enemy. It's used 28 times, and there are only three occasions that we have come to know that it is the devil himself. In Job, Zechariah, and Second 2 Chronicles 21.1. I will tell you that satan, ha-satan, the the word itself is even used to describe the angel of the Lord in Numbers 22. Satan simply means adversary or accuser in the Hebrew scriptures. You with me? But in Job, he actually is this person. He actually is this person. So he shows up at this meeting and I love what God says. He goes, where have you come from? I love it. I love the sarcasm and everything behind it because Satan's answer from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. He says, you know where I came from. You're the one that put me there. I can't go anywhere else. Job, uh, God is actually reminding Satan of who's in charge here. But he did show up at the meeting. One question I ask is always when I preach through Job is, does he belong here? Does he belong there anymore? See, supposedly it's the sons of God, it's the ones that are in charge of all the creations that have showed up at this meeting. Who's supposed to be there representing Earth? Adam and Eve. But what did they do? They handed their rulership over to who? So he thinks he belongs at the meeting. And what happens at the meeting? The Lord said to Satan, I mean, have you considered my servant who? See, he said, I'm walking to and fro. I've got free reign. I reign over everyone and everything on the earth. He's also trying to boast. God says, have you considered my servant Job? You're boasting about being able to go everywhere, but this guy, this guy's hanging tough. This guy's still worshiping me. There's no one like him on the earth, blameless, upright, who fears God and turns away from you. Satan says, I'm going everywhere that I want to, right? God says, there's one heart you haven't got. Who? Job. Then it comes. The question that's asked that I believe defines what the Bible says is satanic because it comes from his lips himself, okay? Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Does Job worship God for nothing? See, this is where the adversary turns into the accuser. Satan's accusing, actually, two people here. He's accusing on two different levels, a divine and a human level. Yeah, he's accusing God, too. He's accusing God of why Job worships him. He's accusing God of of reveling in how he gets worship from his worshipers, and it isn't pretty. You put a fence around him in his house and all that he has on every side. You bless the work of his hands and his possessions. You've increased in the land. But stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has and he will curse you to his face. He accuses God of not being worthy of worship. You have to buy their worship. And that's how you stay in charge. That's how you stay in control. You bless everybody that worships you. You bought his worship. He doesn't worship you because you are you. Job only worships God for what he can get out of the deal. People only follow God because they can get something. One priest wrote in the Middle Ages In Satan's view, God resembles a mafiosa with a kept woman, not a devoted wife or a politician who can only win a fixed election. People love God the way a peasant loves his cow for the milk and the cheese he produces. So one question you have to ask yourself, why do you worship God? Are our motives really pure? Why are we here? Is it because we've only received earthly blessings? Are we proving Satan right? What do we tell others about why we follow God? I remember at the end of Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon putting it this way, the end of the matter has all been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for it is the whole duty of everyone. Notice what Solomon doesn't say by the time that he writes this. Does he say all will go well for you if you do? your days will be well and long on the earth if you follow God? No. He says, do it when you're young. Why? Because then you'd be able to count the blessings. Because Solomon is saying, when you get old, the reasons for wanting to exist become fewer and far between. There'll be days when the sun is darkened and the clouds do nothing but rain and strong men are bent and women get tired and sight dims and daughters are brought low and heights are feared and terrors in the road come, death comes, Morning comes. These are people who believe in God. Whether we believe or don't believe, the Kohelet, when we studied Ecclesiastes, we all end up going where? We all end up going in the same place. Sometimes we put forth the best best reason to pay tithe. What what is it we've been taught that the best reason to pay tithe is? We'll be blessed, right? And we've translated that into something. A lot of the stewardship books that still come to talk about tithe giving means that, that God is going to bless us, that we will actually get blessed more when we give financially. And we use scripture to do it, don't we? Bring in a full tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house, and thus put, tests to the, uh, put me to the test, says the Lord. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you. Pour down all you have with an overflowing blessing. We use scripture to defend it, but that is really what Malachi is saying. Notice the blessing comes from where? It comes from God, it comes from heaven. It's his definition of a blessing. Not ours we 've taught people that if they pay their tithe god 's going to give them more money. I was in a church once where there was a, a, a young family who were in financial trouble and they had just they had just uh, uh, you know, had a poor decision after poor decision. They'd also been victims of predatory lending. They had a horrible mortgage. They had a horrible uh, bunch of loans that they had. So, a couple of the elders thought that if they could sit down with them, maybe they can help them out. The very first thing that one of the elders told him was the first thing that you're going to have to do is that you're going to have to pay your tithe. He really thought that the member was in financial trouble because he didn't pay tithe. The member came and told me later, he said, I've always paid tithe. Always. But that elder assumed since he was in financial trouble, he didn't pay tithe. Malachi says it's a heavenly blessing. The, uh, the, the, the context of Malachi 3 is that uh, before this, is, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He's like a what? A refiner's fire, what have we taken that to mean? What does it mean to be refined in the fire of the Holy Spirit? We usually get there by what? By trial and by tribulation. It's by fire. He'll sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He'll purify the descendants of Levi, redefine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. The context of Malachi 3 is the strengthening of faith. And we get strengthening in faith by suffering, by trial, by tribulation. It's not strengthened by paying your tithe in order to receive a financial blessing. That's not what that verse is about. Present your offerings to God with joy and willingness. Present it when there's no earthly reason to do so. Remember, Jesus has already redefined blessing for us. Did he say, blessed are the rich? Blessed are those who are full? Blessed are the strong? No. He redefined blessing, right? Poor, meek hungry, thirsty, persecuted for righteousness sake. So when all these things happened, when, J- when Satan calls out Job as an example, one thing is, is that with a God who created everybody with free will, Satan questioned Job's motive, he questions God's motive. The only thing God can do Is let it play out because motive can't be discerned. He has to let him have him. He has to let him do it. And in one day, Job loses it all. He loses all his wealth, he loses all his cattle, and his children are wiped out in a horrible Holocaust. Because that's what Satan would do. He can't read his motive. So those who question motive have to see it play out. And in Job's case, it's horrific. You know, and when it happened, there's something about Job. Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground and what? That's remarkable. The shaving the head and tearing his robe, that is an act of um, mourning. That was something that somebody in ancient times would do. He just lost all of his kids. Of course, he's going to mourn. But once he falls on his face, he's no longer mourning. You know what he's doing? He's worshiping. And he says these words, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's worshiping God even though he has no earthly reason to do so anymore. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. I lose every one of my kids in a matter of seconds. I might rethink how I view God. I have to tell you this. Job, to me, is the most remarkable human being that ever walked the planet next to Jesus himself. Because Job... Worships God for no other reason except that he is God. That's it. Would you worship God if you felt that God was your enemy? Because Job thinks that God is his enemy. Job thinks God did this to him and did it on purpose. And yet he still worships him. How many here would do that? There's not any of us who would. Job does. You talk about blessed of the pure in heart, worship with the purest motive, this guy. And then he comes back, right? All this happens, he's still worshiping God, Satan comes back one more time, God says look, I, I let you do whatever you wanted to do and, and, and here he is still worshiping me. Then what? Satan ups the ante, doesn't he? He said, skin for skin. He's still worshiping you because we didn't, I, I, I wasn't allowed to do anything to him. Let me do something to him and he will curse you to your face. Right? Know what he said next? Answered, skin for skin, all the people that give to save their lives. Stretch your hand and he will curse you to his face. So, I told you the adversary uh, accuses on two levels. He accuses divine and human. So, now what is he accusing Job of? He's accusing Job of only worshiping him because he's blessed. All the way down to his actual physical health now. Get me on this. He's not accusing Job of doing his sacrifices wrong, he's not accusing Job of breaking the Sabbath. He's not accusing Job of praying improperly. He's not accusing Job of not paying his tithe. He's accusing Job of doing all those things of worship for the wrong reason. He's questioning his motive. See, we think that sometimes our religious behavior separates us from the wicked. Only sometimes. Religious behavior may tell us or may tell us, may tell us everything or may tell us nothing about a righteous person versus an unrighteous one. Ask anybody who's been in prayer meeting, what is our one example of how uh, a, a perfectly holy worshiper of God, okay, was not righteous at all? It was Saul when he became Paul. He goes, my worship was perfect, I did everything right. My mom and dad did everything right. I was circumcised on the eighth day after I was born to the tribe of Benjamin. I became a Pharisee of Pharisees as unto the law, perfect. I was a perfect Bible-believing worshiper of God. And yet he could murder men, women, and children. Still believed that he was serving God All because those men, women, and children believed that that little country rabbi from Galilee was the Messiah. So good stuff, doing good works, it may tell us everything. It may tell us nothing. About where? About the motive. We don't know, do we? Will a righteous person be a law keeper? I mean, this is, this is uh, you know where we've been. This is wh- what we do. Whoever breaks the least of these commandments, Jesus said, uh, and, and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them uh, and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying there's just one problem with this standard of righteousness. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the self-righteous person, you'll never even enter the kingdom of heaven. There are two ways for our righteousness to exceed the self-righteousness. One is to know that the letter of the law is only the beginning, if nothing else. Remember, the letter of the law said, thou shalt not murder. He said, you've heard it said, the letter of the law, the commandment says, thou shalt not murder. I say to you, don't even be angry. So I could walk around thinking that I'm completely, absolutely righteous because I'm able to restrain myself from wringing the life out of somebody. But I think nothing of being so mean to them that I can't even be recognized as an elder in the church. The Holy Spirit takes you deeper than the word, amen? The letter of the law, the Holy Spirit is the word. The other way that our righteousness exceeds the self righteous is motive. He tells us how we are to practice our piety. We give, we pray, we fast, but we do it for the right reasons. The behavior is exhibited by both groups, by the self righteous and the righteous. But the righteous difference is their motive. They don't do it in order to look good in front of someone else, they also don't do it to try to buy God's favor. Satan is a questioning Job's motive. So here we go. Now I want to bring it back to not judging. This is what it means. To not judge is to not question somebody's motive. You want to be satanic? Question their motive for their behavior. That's why I stand in a church and talk about Satan. Because he created this. He invented this. As soon as he accuses Job of worshiping God only for the blessings that he give, he just opened up the whole reasons for us to question his motive too. And when we sit in Sabbath school and we talk about Job and we talk about what's going on, we're doing the same thing. We immediately have to say, well, was Job perfect or was he not? What was Job's motive? Once we question it, I'm now on his side, not Job's. I'm now on the accuser's side. And we do it all the time. Prophetically, Jesus speaking to the church. In the seven churches of Revelation, there are only two churches that don't receive any rebuke from Jesus. Remember? All of them received uh, praise from Jesus except for one. There's one church that receives no praise. It's all rebuke. That's Laodicea. The other churches... Four of them receive praise and rebuke. There are two that receives no rebuke and only praise. The first one is Smyrna. Smyrna is, is the uh, persecuted church. It's the martyred church. It's that second church in history that the empire through three emperors just uh, was, was wiping them out right and left. He says, I know your affliction and your poverty even though you are rich. I know the slander on the part of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are of the synagogue of Satan. I'll make the, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't jump ahead. The synagogue of Satan. Where does the persecution come from? Where does the slander come from? Where does the questioning of motive come from? From the world? No, it comes from the synagogue. It comes from the church. Satanic activity is not coming from a witch's coven. It's not coming from a bar. It's not coming from a club. It's not coming from a rock concert with pentagrams or some sacrificial ceremony. It's not coming from a Harry Potter movie. It's coming from the church. When you have a church that's decided that they are going to be martyred for the case of Christ, the other church will question why they are doing that. What's your motive? If someone's claiming to be a true child of God, we will not question a brother or sister's motive for their reason for doing things. Once we do, we become truly satanic. Does Job fear God for nothing? Church, do you worship God for nothing? Just a quick example. There may be a group of people here who feel perfectly fine doing x on the sabbath i'm not going to mention one thing i do not want the debate okay you with me one group says i think it's just fine to do x on the sabbath and there's a group of people that hears that and they said you know what they're just using grace as an excuse to sin they just questioned their what they just questioned their motive They just questioned their Sabbath-keeping and their reason for doing so. But guess what? Those on this side look at the ones that don't think it's okay, and on that side, they look at them and go, you're just legalists. You're trying to work your way to heaven. Guess what I just did? Just questioned their motive. When actually all I know is that both groups believe in keeping the Sabbath. Isn't that what we're here for? Why have we turned the Sabbath keeping into something that is satanic? Philadelphia is the only other church that receives no rebuke, only praise. And he says, the reason being, why? is because Philadelphia is known as the church that loves. They're not looking for power. They're not looking for the beast's power. They're looking to get everything done even though they have no power at all. They truly are a church of brotherly and sisterly love. I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but are lying, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have what? I have loved you. People who really truly believe that God loves them. People who really truly believe that God wants them in the prayer closet simply so that we can talk and no other reason, just so that we can walk and talk. They have absolutely no reason to question anyone else's motive for anything. They are completely secure in the love and the grace of God. They will learn that I have loved you. So here Job sits. All earthly blessings removed. His family, his wealth, his health. Suffering what most of us can only imagine. And he cries into the air, but there is no answer. Silence, not from an uncaring God. Silence from a God who has no choice. Or actually has a choice. But has chosen to let the motive live out and not be satanic. So think about it. There's someone in the church too, sitting, suffering because life is hard. It's hard to live like others in this church. They look so perfect and here I am struggling. Why don't we help people like that? Because we're too busy standing aside, questioning their motive for why they are the way they are. and even debating whether or not they belong at all. They have people saying, well, they just want to sin. So if they just want to sin, then just let them keep sinning. They don't want to get any better. They want to, or they have others that say they just want to buy their way to heaven, so just let them keep doing those, those, those legalistic works. But the two churches that don't uh, walk that way, the two churches that don't live that way, they receive no rebuke from the God that they claim to worship. And worship is based on that. It has absolutely no other motive. No other motive at all. Someone who can love and invite someone to belong as a motive, proves that God knows that they love him. They don't judge, they don't need to be concerned about someone else's motive. And again, the most horrifying thing if we're going to continue to do this, the most horrifying thing is that if we are truly going to question somebody's motive, then we have no choice but just to sit back and let it play out. And while we're sitting back and let it playing out, other people are suffering and they're dying. Self-righteous people are perfectly happy watching other people suffer if they think their standard is not being held up. They're constantly questioning somebody's motive. So don't judge unless you want to be judged. We just see people. We're just together. We're supposed to be together in the love of the Lord. I'm glad we are. And I think one of our goals should be to be less satanic and a bit more like the lamb. So we don't judge. We don't question motive. We just look to be loved as we have been loved. Amen. So I hope I got it there, steering it through Tempe and Tucson. I hope I I landed that. If not, forgive me. We'll take another shot at it next week. Thank you for hanging in there with me. It's good to see you all. Happy Sabbath.